The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. The moment we are here to witness was brought about through brilliant and painstaking work of scientists all over the world, including many men and women. It was June 2000. President Bill Clinton was in the crowded White House East Room announcing a momentous achievement government scientists had decoded nearly all three billion letters of the human genetic blueprint. The excitement and the hype was intense. President Clinton painted a tantalizing picture of the opening of a new scientific frontier. With this profound new knowledge, humankind is on the verge of gaining immense new power to heal. Genome science will have a real impact on all our lives, and even more, on the lives of our children. It will revolutionize the diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of most, if not all, human diseases. In coming years, doctors increasingly will be able to cure diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, diabetes, and cancer by attacking their genetic roots. It didn't work out that way, at least not exactly. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm your host, Michelle Faye Cortez. This week, we're going to tell you what happened after the press conference and how one of the greatest undertakings in medical history, the decoding of the human genome, was just the start of an exhilarating, frustrating journey that's still far from over. Here's Bloomberg's Bob Langreth with the story. Sitting next to Clinton at the White House was Francis Collins. Collins is a geneticist, and he led the international team that worked on the Genome Project. Now he runs the National Institutes of Health. I was both excited about the way in which the world was going to find out that we had a draft of the human genome sequence, the instruction book for human biology, but I had also just spoken at the funeral of my sister-in-law two days before, who died from cancer, and for whom this particular advance hadn't come along soon enough. So it sort of put the whole thing into focus of what we had and how far we still needed to go for this to actually benefit uh, people who are waiting for answers. Actually, the genome wasn't done. It was only a first draft. The unveiling was pushed out quickly, in part because the government was racing a private group. At the press conference, the teams had only fully scanned about 90% of the genome. It'd be three years before the final version was published. And even with the map, finding the causes of diseases in the genetic code was elusive. Instead of a few key genes driving common ailments like heart disease or diabetes, scientists found dozens, if not hundreds. Human common disease is really complicated. 
more complicated than we thought it was going to be. Less than a decade ago, despite the flood of new genome data, there was a sense that drugs were getting harder to discover. A 2010 New York Times article called the goal of finding the genetic roots of disease elusive. It said that, quote, geneticists are almost back to square one in knowing where to look for the roots of common disease, unquote. But behind the scenes, something important was happening. It took 13 years and cost $3 billion to decode the first genome. And $400 million of that went just to the sequencing itself, according to Dr. Collins. The sequencing machines that did most of the work uh, for sequencing that first human genome were the size of phone booths. And it took uh, a warehouse full of them to have the kind of throughput you needed to achieve this. DNA sequencing needed to get faster, cheaper, and smaller. It needed a revolution. If you look over the history of science, the thing that has been profoundly game-changing in a scientific area uh, is, is major technical innovations. You know, whether it was inventing the telescope, what it did to astronomy, inventing a microscope, what it did for microbiology and cell biology, and look at that first CAT scan, what it did for radiology. That's Eric Green, who is now director of the National Human Genome Research Institute. He was an early genome researcher at the NIH. I think we recognize that the technologies that were used for sequencing that first human genome were good enough, but we needed something far better. The trick was to take billions of letters in a person's DNA and process them all at the same time, like a computer circuit with billions of transistors all firing at once. As newer and faster machines were introduced, costs sank rapidly. In 2005, the cost of scanning a human genome ran to about $10 million. By 2015, raw scanning costs plummeted to below $1,500. In 2003, did I believe it was going to happen this quickly? Absolutely not. I'm sure any of us would have gotten it wrong probably by twofold. We probably would have said it would have taken, you know, 30 years to get down to a $1,000 human genome sequence. Roomfuls of machines were no longer needed, Dr. Collins says. Now, the sequencing machines sit on the desktop, or in the most dramatic example, they're about the size of a cell phone that attaches directly uh, to your laptop. That's when DNA sequencing went from being a research tool and became medicine. In 2009, doctors in Wisconsin were treating four-year-old Nicholas Volker for a mysterious disease that produced holes in his intestine. In desperation, his doctors convinced geneticists at the Medical College of Wisconsin to sequence all his genes. Here's Nick's doctor reaching out to the geneticist with an unprecedented request. Dear Howard, I hope you are well. I'm writing to get your thoughts on a patient of mine that might benefit from a high-throughput sequencing of his genome. This is a unique situation. This patient is very ill and has been in the hospital since January. It worked. They found an unexpected mutation, and it pointed to a treatment, a bone marrow transplant. The case exploded into the headlines when the Milwaukee, Wisconsin Journal Sentinel wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning series about the success. Around the same time, researcher Stephen Kingsmore helped perform a highly detailed genome of a Korean person. The medical potential was becoming clearer. 
we kind of as a team had a, a eureka moment when we said, aha, there's a huge amount of information in here that's of practical usefulness to people. And this really changed the trajectory of my career. It made me want to go from a basic research institute back into a hospital environment where we could start to apply this and understand what it might mean for the future of medicine. By 2012, Dr. Kingsmore was testing out a new, ultra-fast sequencing machine on sick babies. We started to use it in our neonatal intensive care unit where decisions had to be made within minutes or hours. There was no time to lose in making a diagnosis. And so we published a paper in October of 2012 saying that we could decode a baby's genome in 48 hours and return those results back to the neonatologist and showed that it would change the management. That was truly a breakthrough. Dr. Kingsmore is now at the forefront of using genome testing to diagnose and treat infants with unknown genetic diseases at the Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine in San Diego. It turns out to be an ideal application for genome sequencing. Tens of thousands of babies are born each year with unknown genetic diseases. There are 10,000 genetic diseases, and no physician on planet Earth has ever seen them all. So picking which of those to test for is incredibly difficult. The second thing is that in newborns, the genetic diseases really don't look like their textbook description. When you put those two reasons together, it means that without the ability to just survey the entire genome and examine all 10,000 genetic diseases at once, uh, the, the likelihood of a physician making the correct diagnosis is almost zero. His lab has three of the top-of-the-line genome scanning machines from a company called Illumina. The machines are roughly the size of a washing machine. In urgent situations, his team can decode a baby genome in about two days. We uh, receive blood samples and medical records from about 15 children's hospitals all around North America. And so uh, they will contact us and let us know that they have a kid who they believe they might need a genome sequence on. And the following morning, the sample will arrive. We'll then put that into our batch for the day. And our goal is to deliver a diagnostic result as quickly as is humanly possible back to that physician with a goal, obviously, of giving uh, treatment guidance that will either save a child's life or prevent complications of that disease. In three years at Rady, Dr. Kingsmore's team has decoded the genomes of hundreds of sick babies, and it is making a difference. So one in two or one in three, we will make a diagnosis. A figure that's completely consistent is that 70% of those diagnoses will result in changes in how the baby is managed in the intensive care unit. And then about one in four has a change in outcome. Sometimes it is life-saving. There are some extraordinary saves. There are some children who undoubtedly would die. And uh, we make a phone call with a diagnosis. There's a treatment. It's given promptly and the child does well. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Faster, cheaper DNA testing was beginning to revolutionize medical care by 2012. Then, in 2013, two things happened. One in Washington and the other in Hollywood. The Supreme Court said that genes couldn't be someone's intellectual property. And one of the world's biggest movie stars made a stark medical choice based on her DNA. A few years ago, a blood test revealed that Angelina carried a mutation of the BRCA1 gene, giving her an estimated 87% risk of breast cancer, a 50% risk of ovarian cancer. So in 2013, she had both breasts removed and underwent reconstructive surgery, emerging as a beacon of hope for women when she told the world. I feel wonderful and I'm very, very grateful for all the support. It's meant a lot to me. Ellen Matloff at the time was a cancer genetic counselor at Yale University. She helped patients and their families understand their risk, order the correct tests, and interpret complex DNA results. When I was the director of the Cancer Genetic Counseling Program at Yale, I saw several things shifting, and they were seismic shifts. First, Angelina Jolie came out with her New York Times editorial that she was a BRCA1 carrier. And overnight, our referrals increased by 40%, and they never returned to baseline. (laughs) There was a huge change. Then, a few weeks later, the Supreme Court issued its ruling that meant companies, including the one that had a monopoly on the test Angelina Jolie used, couldn't own the patents on genes. Here's Dr. Collins again. It was a wonderful day indeed uh, when the Supreme Court, in a nine-to-nothing decision, Uh, came out with their conclusion that gene patenting ought not to be allowable, that it didn't fit with the original goals of the patent system. And I think that has opened up uh, diagnostics in a much broader way, uh, which has been a very good thing for the whole field and has accelerated the possibilities of many of us having that kind of information now or in the future. For years, one company had the patent on BRCA1 and BRCA2, the most common causes of hereditary breast cancer. That meant that hospitals and companies not holding the patent couldn't combine them into broader tests. Gene patenting was a serious threat in the view of many of us uh, to progress in this field. And yet it continued for quite a few years after that. At the time of the Supreme Court ruling, BRCA testing costs as much as $4,000. Within days of the decision, new companies that had been barred from the market started offering their own tests. Costs plummeted. Ellen Matloff, who now runs a startup called My Gene Council, was a plaintiff in the Supreme Court case. She saw the impact on patients firsthand. And today we have some testing companies that have offered BRCA 1 and 2 testing from time to time for 100 or $200, so it's changed dramatically. Of course, cost isn't the only problem that geneticists were grappling with. And the easy diagnoses and freely flowing data envisioned years ago haven't quite come to pass. 
I can remember 15 years ago when the genome was sequenced that everyone was saying that, first of all, you would carry around your genome like a flash drive, and it would be a piece of cake. You'd just bring it to your doctor's office, plug it in, and that every doctor would be so educated on genomics that they would be able to interpret it. None of that has been as simple as it sounded, but where the failure has come is helping consumers and healthcare providers understand and use the data. Also, as genetic tests become more common, the risk of misinterpretation by doctors untrained in the complex world of genetics is growing. This is especially true in the high-stakes area of cancer, where ordering the wrong tests or misinterpreting the result can lead to a fatal illness or unnecessary surgery. It's a problem that some say is getting worse. We are finding that genetic test results are being misinterpreted more often now than ever before. And the reason for that is that fewer patients are seeing certified genetic counselors to order their tests and to interpret them after. And also, the tests have grown in complexity, so it's easier to misinterpret them now. In terms of drugs, Dr. Collins says cancer is one area that's seen a direct impact from the Genome Project. Cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease, and understanding gene abnormalities in patient tumors has led to powerful new treatments for leukemia, certain types of lung cancer, and breast cancer. If you want to take an area where having access to genome sequence has been revolutionary, it's cancer. If I had cancer today, or if anybody I know had cancer today, I would want their tumor to undergo a complete DNA sequencing in order to identify what mutations have happened in that cancer to cause those good cells to go bad. Increasingly, cancer centers are scanning patients' DNA to match them to the treatment most likely to work for them. And biotech companies are working on developing a liquid biopsy that would detect signs of cancer in the blood. So far this year, there have been about a dozen new cancer drugs approved by the FDA. And so the list of targeted drug treatments for cancer is growing almost daily. Nevertheless, many tumors have turned out to have a complicated array of mutations, and we don't always know how to target them. But there may be another reason why there aren't more gene-based drugs. Luis Amaral, who studies complex systems at Northwestern University, has found that risk-averse researchers have been concentrating most of their attention on genes that have been known for years. They're ignoring unknown genes, some of which could lead to medical breakthroughs. One of the numbers that I think is important is this idea that 5% of the genes are accounting for about 50% of the publications. Very little attention is really being given to a very large fraction of the, of the genes. In fact, in the five years between 2011 and 2015, Dr. Amaral and his research partner, Thomas Stugar, found only a handful of new genes broke out from obscurity to become objects of intensive scientific research. Everybody is becoming more and more conservative, which means that the way in which we are exploring the unknown is less and less efficient. But if we keep having that attitude, we are never, I mean, it's going to be, you know, a new gene understood per, per year. And at that rate, it would only take about another 15,000 years to understand every single gene in the human genome. One method that has proven useful for finding new drugs has been looking for people with certain genetic abnormalities. But instead of hurting them, their mutations help. 
an aerobics instructor in Texas with super low cholesterol had a rare mutation in a gene called PCSK9. That discovery has led to two powerful new cholesterol-lowering medications in 2015. Here's Dr. Collins again. Finding individuals who are rare examples where they're protected against disease, you could call them superhumans, um, is very much part of what anybody who thinks about genetics would hope to find. And that's what we found with PCSK9. It's one of those really amazing success stories of the last decade. To help find more precision treatments, the NIH set up a giant new research program that will track the health information of one million American residents, eventually sequencing the genomes of all of them. The All of Us project will cost $1.5 billion over 10 years. If we really want to understand how effectively to apply precision medicine to the average person in this country, we need a very large pilot study to find out how that works. This will be the largest, most powerful research database ever contemplated in this country. And it will teach us whether such things as knowing your genome sequence is going to make you healthier. So what's next? George Church, a genetics professor at Harvard Medical School, thinks the state of DNA testing and scanning is like the Internet in the early 90s. So I was using computer network type of things around 1968, which is about the time the internet started. And it was pretty sleepy until around 1993, when suddenly everybody saw that there was a web browser. And and then within a year, there was uh, millions of web pages from almost a standstill. We have all the infrastructure in place to sequence millions of, of human genomes, possibly billions with a little effort, but people are not aware of it. They don't realize that the killer apps are already, some of them are already there. In October, the Food and Drug Administration approved the first direct-to-consumer test to spot genetic variations in how people's bodies interact with different medicines, but warned that people shouldn't use it to make medical decisions by themselves. But while most people don't need it, the potential for greater use of genetic testing is enormous. Here's Dr. Collins again. We now know that probably 2 or 3% of us are walking around with significant DNA mistakes that would be actionable right now if we knew about it. That we have one of those uh, misspellings that places us at risk, maybe for heart disease or cancer or some clotting problem or some neurologic difficulty. 2 or 3%, well, goodness sakes, if there are 300 million people just in this country... We're talking about somewhere between 6 to 9 million people right now that if they had that information, their medical care would change for their benefit. George Church thinks that genome scanning could directly help at least 1% of people, and more are walking around with genetic variants that might put their children at risk. But that would be my guess. 10 years from now, we could have everybody who has any reasonable health care plan, maybe a billion people, sequenced and then 5% of those that are at risk for having children that have a severe genetic disease will avoid that. The key, he says, is getting people to do it. I think it's analogous to seatbelts, where the seatbelts were free, but people still didn't use them, and you had to, had to have some public health strategy. We've come a long way. Francis Collins's career shows how much the technology has advanced. When he and other scientists were trying to find the gene for cystic fibrosis in the 1980s, it was agonizingly slow going. It was horrendously difficult. There was no genome project. Uh, There was very little knowledge about anything about the DNA of the human except 
little tiny islands that people had worked on. It took years, but now, thanks to their groundwork, there finally are treatments. Today, if you gave me DNA samples from a few families with cystic fibrosis and a DNA sequencer, a decent graduate student would have this answer in about two days. Uh, that's the way it's happened. That's, the, that's a great example of just what it has meant uh, to cross into this new territory where these technologies are so powerful and so widely available. So if anybody tries to say, well, you know, genomics was sort of a fizzle, it didn't get us anywhere, <laughs> boy, uh, just look at what's now feasible. And that's it for this week's prognosis. Thanks for listening. Do you have a story about healthcare in the U.S. or around the world? We want to hear from you. You can email me, mcortez at bloomberg.net, or find me on Twitter, at Cortez. If you are a fan of this episode, please take a moment to rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. This episode was produced by Liz Smith. Our story editor was Tim Annette. Thanks also to Drew Armstrong. Francesca Levy is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.